Hello and welcome to episode 17 for our beautiful podcast Across the Aisle. We hope you are well out there, Melbourne. It's been an extremely hectic spring. I'm gratefully joined by my sidekick and confidant, Philip Till. Hey. That's my hay fever squeak. Mm. (laughs) As the year wraps up, we bring our shows for this episode close to home. Two original Australian productions, Deceptive Threads by Bowerbird Productions at 45 Downstairs and Black Showgirls at the Malt House. We'll also be discussing Melbourne's insane weather, me finally coming out of my shell and seeing some shows, and no doubt all the fabulous FOMO-inducing things Philip has been up to at intermission. But up first is your pick, Philip, Black Showgirls. Black Showgirls, yes. And just before we launch into our two discussions. I'm glad you have picked up that there is a nice thread between the two works, that they are indeed exploring Straya. Straya. In in different... From one end to the other. Somehow aligned ways. Yeah. Uh, Black Showgirls at the Malt House with dramaturg Declan Green of Sisters Grimm fame describes itself as not your standard sexploitation story. Ginny... Uh, it says the uh, booklet is a white-skinned black girl who dreams of becoming the best Aboriginal dancer in the glitzy clubs of Bris Vegas. Belittled by judges at her first audition, Ginny begins to doubt that she'll ever perform her peaking emu on stage. <laughs> and indeed, she moves herself from shithole, her hometown. C-H-I-T-O-L-E. <laughs> to Bris Vegas, where... Because of a range of factors, she triumphs, overcomes all the odds uh, to be the wonderful performer who was always waiting in the wings or deep inside herself uh, to overtake the Indigenous arts of Bris Vegas. So this uh, show from the very outset troubled its liberal audience, <laughs> t- tickled their political correctness. Uh, we sat down to the to the dulcet strains of I come from the land down under. Uh, and then as soon as the show begins with a kind of acknowledgement of country, that is undermined camply along with everything else in the show. It was the least reverent piece of Indigenous-themed art I've ever seen. In fact, it ramped that up to 11. Every single image that we saw on the stage made Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, look, <laughs> look, look regional. Um, and and there, was, there was something completely scrumptious. Once you were freed from a kind of righteous piety, and that was within the first 10 seconds, it was an absolute silly, gorgeous romp. And yet... The big major twist where the sympathies of the audience are successfully connected to this pale-skinned person who identifies as Aboriginal, as she slowly but surely becomes a true villainous, demonic figure. Um, I I loved the fact that members of the audience, including myself, just did not know where to look, (laughs) did not know what to think. This was meant to be our moment of understanding and a kind of pious victory. I mean, we know, don't we, as non-readers of the Herald Sun and antagonists of figures like Andrew Bolt, that people can look different and be Indigenous and that there needs to be cultural spaces for people who are diverse-looking and diverse-identifying. And so for that to be turned back on us, to be mirrored back on us, 
and for the accusatory finger of the production to be pointed fair and square at the pale-skinned non-Indigenous audience uh, was, was thrilling in a perverse way. Thank you, Declan. You got me. And Nakia Louie, who is the writer, the Aboriginal oh, writer. Oh, sorry. Right. Good. Yeah. So, so my list here is incomplete, but fabulous indeed. Yeah. So Nakia Louie, who is an Indigenous playwright who also writes a show on the ABC called um, Black Comedy and did a show at the, M- at the Malt House last year. I think it was Black Cabaret. I've watched Black Comedy before and... I've, you know, had a good chuckle at it, but this was completely side-splittingly... It was a scream. ...horrendous and outrageous. (laughs) And just kind of a bit disgusting. Yeah. You know? And it really kind of thread all of those beautiful elements that... It's funny because I've been thinking about Lilith a lot and where Lilith was not successful, Lilith and the Jungle Girl, which we covered, I think it was last episode, and Declan wrote and directed, and Nakia was the dramaturge on that one. So we've reversed the roles on this one. Where those 90s elements weren't successful in Lilith, I thought they were just screamingly successful in this. But I think we have to make a confession, Philip, because I think we're really bad queers. Have you seen Showgirls, the movie? No. (laughs) Neither have I. (laughs) So apparently, like, this is a massive piss take of that. Oh, fine. I mean, it worked perfectly well without the the source material in it. Yeah, and it had that real, like, camp schlock. Oh, my God. You know, kid from the country moves to the city to. It was generic. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that you would, yeah, go to the big city, which in this case wasn't that big and have grand Hollywood ambitions, in this case, to be, you know, performing in the cum den, among other venues. Um, but all, all of that was was kind of lovingly done. But as you say, the grotesqueness of this production, when you've got an Indigenous performer who is totally beautiful, Guy Simon, wearing a single... Oh, oh my, stunning. Oh, oh, let's just pause. Minute silence. Yes. Um, but for him to be wearing a T-shirt based on Fresh Out of Compton that says Fresh Out of Genocide... <laughs> What do you do with that? But it's there. It doesn't go away because it's on that perfect body, right? There's so much in it. Kind of like I had more Muriel's Wedding kind of flashbacks because of the whole, you know, Queensland bogan kind of element. And also all the the, the women in the production were also like, you know, sort of plus-size performers as well. So Mm. I had that more Muriel element to it. And it's interesting. We've said Priscilla. We've said Muriel. It was one of those... Australian pieces of quirky cinema from the 90s. Yes. I mean, that, that, that was the, the tone of it, the soundtrack of it, and I guess the pleasure of it too. So I really appreciate what you've said because the whole time I was thinking, I'm sitting there going, maybe she is a fair-skinned Aboriginal person. <laughs> and, you know, she, has, she does her, uh, you know, Outback Talent Quest performance at the beginning and the, the crowd is chanting white chocolate, white chocolate. <laughs> Or screaming at it inside out coconut, which we're all like hilariously laughing at. But there's this part of us that's like, oh, we want the fat girl to win. We want the fat, you know, pale skinned indigenous girl to win. And then <laughs> as it slowly becomes revealed over the course of the show that she was actually the child of a prolific racist <laughs> who dressed up in blackface, which is how she became 
confused it's over her cultural twist. heritage. You know, the white faces and the black faces in this production <laughs> are all just so can't they are like masks and so problematically. I know, and then there was like the black facing of the nipples in the mm, show. Yes. <laughs> yes, your nipples aren't dark enough. Oh, so much goodness to remember. But the thing that really struck me the most, because our culture, and I when by our culture I mean sort of uh, left-leaning, liberal, Melbourneian, theatre-going culture, is so kind of mawkishly reverent about the minor ceremonial elements of Indigenous recognition that we sort of partake in or participate in, that when you have this pale-skinned person saying, I love you, dirt, in a Bogan accent while wearing the Indigenous flag on her T-shirt, you really don't know how to feel or think because usually it's just very predictable. Like sometimes the smoking ceremony is a bit longer or shorter or done by somebody of the place where you're having the event or actually just acknowledging that they are not from that place. But to have this person do everything wrongly and in this twisted way that is nonetheless part of what we need to be protected and enjoyed and celebrated and brought into our cultural moment was so, yeah, twisted Mm. um, and, and hilarious. So Bessie Holland, who plays fabulously, plays Ginny Jones. Amazing. Oh my god, Bessie, you're incredible. Yeah. Uh, so as the play goes on, you know, Bessie finds out. I mean, Ginny finds out that she is actually white, but chooses <laughs> to still dance in black showgirls as the headliner, and then take over the board. And she oh, bumps out Shandon. Shandon, the the oh, actual indigenous who performer, who is equally brilliantly performed by Elaine Crombie. I mean the. The fight, the feisty, mm. scratchy fight between those two was magnificent. So it had all those beautiful elements of terrible trash, <laughs> of, you know, young fighting old, city versus country, mm. you know, the parochial racist white person. But, you know, you, you actually were still kind of rooting. I was rooting for her right until the end. I agree. And then she turned around and stabbed us all in the heart. Yes, yes. And I guess that the one thing that was done in a more serious way and the thing that stayed with me in terms of the politics was this question of selling oneself. Um, And the ultimate political claim of this production, I think, is that Indigenous people are those who should decide whether or not their culture is packaged and how it's packaged. So it doesn't matter how crass it is. It doesn't matter what's printed on the T-shirt. The question remains who's printing the T-shirt, who's doing the emu peeking dance. (laughs) Um, And and the the fact that um, it is a kind of literal exploitation that Ginny gets the sacred, sacred, really sacred dance... (laughs) (laughs) and manages to perform it, she sort of squeezes it out of her gorgeous surfing boyfriend, is what's really problematic and it is what's going on, mostly in the tourism industry but perhaps also in the entertainment industry in Australia. But also I think ultimately in the end it is a searing example of how pernicious good intentions can be. So, you know, they're saying the path to hell is paved with good intentions. You've got this dumb, fat <laughs> girl from the country who only wants to dance, <laughs> you know. And in the you're like, oh, yeah. But then in the end, slowly over time, because of her white privilege and her fair skin privilege, mm. she's just able to take up all the positions of power and be into the position of power where yeah. she can you know, change the direction of the Indigenous fucking dance troupe that she now leads. Yes. And, you know. And it is, you're right, about 
power and as soon as it no longer gives her power to identify as Indigenous, it doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. That's actually used and it's abused by her as this perverse fast track to cultural influence. And she simply deletes everybody who's in that space, sort of swallows them whole and becomes the best friend of the board and takes over. Mm. So so it's a real parable of how our reality TV-infused culture of an equivalence between wanting something and deserving something is destructive and leads to really, really bad art. (laughs) I mean, the the dancers that were portrayed were... I mean, I I always admire people who can dance and act well but pull off looking like they can really do it badly. So hard. This was such a great example of singing out a tune, you know, stunning. She was such a wide-eyed idiot. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was... Actually, very shrewd and brought the point across, I think, far heavily and deftly than a dramatic piece would have been about it. And that's actually an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. Great use of cabaret and comedy to really drill deeper into material than an earnest straight performance might do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Malthouse. 2017 is looking really rich when it comes to multicultural and Indigenous content at the Malthouse. And if it stays in this kind of pitch, that's going to be really exciting. It's a Woo! Coffee, 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 coffee. Mm, nah. Nah. Chocolate. Not at the theatre. No. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk about the crazy weather. Oh, my God. Kill us. I know. Actually, sorry. Too soon. Yes, too soon. Wow. So uh, those of you outside of Melbourne may not know. We're dying. Yes, we've had such a severe hay fever The world's season. most livable city kills its citizens. <laughs> we've had the most severe hay fever season that four uh, people have died on Monday. On the same night. On the same night. Thunderstorm, asthma, quote unquote. And 10 people are still in intensive care. It's pure Hollywood. It's dark. Yes, exactly. I know. So I don't really know what to think about all of it, except I did see a lot of op-eds linked to the Thunderstorm asthma pieces saying doctors are afraid of global warming. (laughs) They're starting to realise there's a pattern here. I I didn't click through. Wow, a sea of red was the language the ambulance people were using to describe what the map looked like of the call-outs. Yeah. My God. So it's terrible. Well, my solution has been to watch films by Roman Polanski. Oh, okay. Mm. Why is that? Well, the imagery is suitable. Rosemary's Baby style, Satan. Mm. Um, But no, Acme uh, ran a season of his films. But what I wanted to talk about was Acme itself. The best deal in Melbourne is film membership at Acme. 25 bucks for the year. That includes some freebies and $10 tickets to all of their movies all the time. And their programming is just badly marketed but outstanding. Okay. I love the rooms. They've got these two very different cinemas. Not that many people go. They are very comfy. But the facilities are gorgeous. It's actually in the city where you want to be, across the road from the station. Um, And, yeah, I mean, when you're on a bit of an auteur kick with whoever they've decided to screen for you, you can actually treat it really like a festival, you know, day after day, seeing something by the same person and becoming a bit of a nerd temporarily in whatever that is. They've got little seasons about fashion films, lots of... um, I mean, there there was a 
season of Russian films, but, you know, run by the actual Russian Film Festival. But you get a cheap ticket because you're an ACME member. Yeah. Love it. Such a great deal. Everyone go. Any highlights? Um, I actually liked his first feature-length film, which he made while still in Poland, called Knife in the Water, which is on a yacht. There's something about yacht films, like that Nicole Kidman one, Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Mm. It had the air of claustrophobia and uh, murderous flirtation and danger as that film. Um, And so that was the sort of discovery for me. But my favourite is the one where uh, Catherine Deneuve is in a kind of decaying apartment called Repulsion. Oh, yeah. wow. And sort of, sort of early, um, badly done latex special effects of hands thrusting through walls as she loses it, basically. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay. Um, and just nice to be able to not decide to see that, but see it just because it's $10 and it's on. Wonderful. Yeah, that is nice. Mm. Just to kind of go along. Well, I went to the Heidi... Museum of Modern Art. Beautiful. I haven't been in ages. Mm. And I thought I'd better get out there before it gets too too hot. So Mm -hmm. that's a bit of a coming soon as well. Mm -hmm. So get out there before Mm -hmm. it gets over 35 or whatever. But they have an absolutely extraordinary exhibition on at the moment with Grace Grace Cossington-Smith and Margaret Preston, two Australian artists. Is it their stuff or touring? It's their stuff. Wow. Oh, I don't know if it's Heidi's stuff. Okay. I think it's in collaboration with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. How exciting. And also an artist who I'd never seen before, Georgia O'Keeffe, or Georgia Keefe O'Keeffe, who was a uh, modernist artist from America, all at the same time, 10s, 20s, 30s. Great. Unbelievable exhibition. Mm. I thoroughly recommend it, Mm. especially if you don't go to Heidi very often. Mm. And you can ride there. You can go along the main Yarra Trail after oh, Heidi. Yeah. yeah, it's not too far. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I did actually go to the movies as well. Ooh. And I saw a ride. <gasps> I've seen a aliens. What do you think? Circular communication with their beautiful little paws. Octopods? <laughs> what was that? Heptopods. Heptopods. I, I fell into a trance. I mean, the soundtrack alone is mesmerizing. It's really amazingly made. It's kind of hyper real, despite mm. being almost all effects. And what I loved is that I mentioned Repulsion's kind of silly effects. This actually used very big budget uh, technology to make beautiful, beautiful things. Like the disappearance of the ships at the end of the film is just this kind of dissolve of, of like cosmic gorgeousness. It's very rare these days for a sci-fi film to kind of be new. Mm. Like even like the concept of a sci-fi film with aliens or whatever isn't mm. new. But it was like very fresh. Mm. I did find, even though there was like a lady scientist and a man mathematician, (laughs) I did find it a bit naff. Oh, the child's love. The child's love. Why? Like, why? (laughs) Sure. Why does like the woman have to like want a family in the end? Or, you know, like, it was was a pretty clever kind of. I don't want to give away but too much. But it was much. a kind of expansion of that, and that's problematic. You know, it sort of ta- it, oh, it takes that hyper-domestic, boring, uh, hyper-feminine family fantasy and makes it into something timeless. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And then Which there is was problematic. like there was like there was like this. Normally, I could sort of brush that away, be like, okay, mm. 
you know, but she, and she's the linguist and he's the mathematician. But I'm like, why couldn't she be the mathematician and yeah. he be the linguist? Yeah. You know, like... Oh, I see. That the, the, the her communication focus and peace focus. Yes. Because literally there's a quote, like, right at the beginning. And he's, they're like, oh, he's a mathematician. And they're like, hey, how's it going? And uh, he's like, do we know if they even understand, like, pi yet or whatever? And she's like... <laughs> Well, why don't we just talk to them? Oh, I'm like, good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's like this fake, there's this fake story about how the word kangaroo <laughs> came into existence. I know, and that and actually it was really offensive because they were like, yeah, well, look at what happened to the Aboriginals when a more advanced I know, race that came to meet belonged them. In, oh, a, in a camp version, so in Black racist. Showgirls, right? Oh my God, I know. It was, it was so silly. But in terms of like a sci-fi film and a big movie... I would recommend seeing it. You can sink into it. It's such a pleasure. It is. And it's very paced. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's a ride. Yeah. Like a gentle ride. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I'm so um, glad that I got to talk to you about that. Yeah. Good one. Oh, downstairs. Oh, we've got to go. Oh, and there's still all of these stairs. (laughs) (laughs) Keep climbing. So our second show that we saw this month was Deceptive Threads at 45 Downstairs. And it tells the extraordinary true stories of performer David Joseph's grandfathers, one a Tivoli singer who turned ASIO spymaster, and the other an early Lebanese immigrant who had to lie about his birthplace to gain Australian naturalisation. This is all from 45 Downstairs. Deftly untangling the threads linking his family connection to Australia's racist past and its present dilemma over asylum seekers, Joseph explores important issues of belonging, history, genealogy and national identity. So this was a one-man show in the wonderful space of 45 Downstairs. I just love it there. It's wonderful. I love how it shapes and shifts for the shows. And I mean, of course, every space does that theatre space, but there's something really special about that space. I don't know what... It's the fact that it's downstairs. <laughs> Con- concrete. <laughs> it's like going down into the basement, symbolically, psychologically. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I can really kind of disconnect there. Yeah, and me too. Of... So, as said from the uh, material that we read, the show is sort of really split up into two elements of David exploring his Lebanese grandfather's past and his Australian grandfather's past, the ASIO agent, and playing that out. Very multimedia piece as well, so lots of projections and I don't know whether it was like really interesting stagecraft to kind of give him a break in a one-man show, so there'd be a lot of kind of audio, visual, giving him time to change or giving him time to just kind of chill out. But it was didn't detract from the piece at all. And you could really tell that he is a seasoned performer. Yeah, I like, agree. This show was so well made, mm. it was ridiculous. And the... Projections were done not in a hyper-contemporary way, but with an almost kind of Etsy, crafty aesthetic. So he was projecting onto threads or Mm. making the installation-style stage something that interacted with the light that was projected onto it. And he would be kind of pushing and pulling things, filing cabinets... I want to say typewriters. I'm not sure if that was really part of it. It was there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's, I mean, there was that sense of kind of vintage that was appropriate to the era of his grandfathers um, and this big overarching metaphor of the threads and the continuity between the past and the present. Beautifully 
created and yes. presented. Yeah. Some of the things on the stage just didn't didn't even need to be there. They were purely decorative and set the scene in a kind of psychologically believable way. There was so much care and mm. love mm. and detail put into this. It is the second mounting of this show, so, you know, presumably it's been edited or tightened up or, you know, loosened up or something. But uh, I actually find this show quite extraordinary that there's only five people listed as creatives and producers on it. Wow. Considering, like, the set was so detailed mm. and massive bags of labne hanging mm. from the roof and threads coming out from the overlocker that, you know, his grandmother used mm. and the women in his family used. Mm. Uh, big sheet for the projections, but also yeah. you know, as a curtain. And the the fact that... At the end of the show, food is served, yes. you know, from the stage into the audience. Summarises kind of all you need to know about the mood of the piece, mm. that it is about storytelling, sharing space and time together, audience and performer having this real sense of connection. But also, they are very personal family stories. And at the same time, it's Australia's story as a nation, told by these two indicative examples of his grandfathers. I mean, it's so useful and sad to be reminded of the history of immigration to the federated Australia Mm. and beyond into the past, being just racist from the top. I mean, we're, we're in a country that is obsessed by immigration and has always imagined immigration through a racist lens. Yes. So, you know, we found a nation and the first thing we do is to create the white Australia policy. Mm. And it's not a difficult thing to do to connect that original impulse from 1901 to our current equally absurd and equally racist immigration dilemmas. So for somebody to do that so generously and so personally, I mean, the temptation surely if you're telling your own family history is to be narcissistic and think only of yourself. But he managed to sort of blend the personal and the political in a really generous way, which was where the power of the show was for me. And I think also David Joseph must have felt some level of vindication as well because and the week that we saw that I saw the play, you've got Peter Dutton saying, you know, it was Malcolm Fraser's biggest mistake to let in these Lebanese immigrants. Yeah. And that it's the third generation Lebanese immigrants that are, you know, going off to fight ISIS and they're a scourge on this country. This man, David Joseph, is a third generation Lebanese immigrant. What a scourge. It's absolutely disgusting. Mm. And to see this play and hopefully he feels somewhat that he has contributed to the story of, of how migrants come to this world, this mm, country and mm. migrate all over the mm. world. But that also that his grandfather had to falsify documents and lie about where he actually came from to become naturalised, yeah. saying he, he arrived from Greece rather mm. than Lebanon. That we, we have always had these bugbears. I mean, in some ways that's comforting to me that we've always been just outrageously, disgustingly racist, that it isn't something new that our generation has kind of, like, loved. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, why won't this ever die? Like, how does this sort of bloom? It's like a mould. Well, the other thing that I was comforted by in a dark sort of way, actually not in a dark way at all, it was good to see that another continuity in Australian history is the radical potential of migrants to this country. Mm. And that in the audience on the night I attended the show, there was a real sense around me of people being from families who have migrated to Australia, not 
so long ago that they have forgotten. And I could sense that there were people's own personal memories being sparked by the stories being told from the stage. And that was actually empowering. It sort of, it it had a real activist potential Mm. uh, that for all the official political discourse of this country being paranoid, Mm. there has also always been something that runs counter to that, especially in a city like Melbourne, which is the strength of diversity and the fact that people are new, bring their ideas, bring their politics, bring the strength of their culture to this place, and that that is actually justifiably threatening to people who want to maintain that racism and that ignorance. And I find where these two plays meet to be extremely interesting because that was another point about Black Showgirls that I really took on board was white people have no culture, right? So very little. So they're either threatened and intimidated by people that have culture or they're trying to appropriate it mm. at all times and make it theirs, mm. you know. And so also in the same week where we've got Pauline Hanson saying, I'm sick of being called a racist and, you know, back in the day the wogs who came here just, you know, took it on the chin when people would give them shit in the quote-unquote Australian way and then that's how they assimilate it. It's like, mate, that's not assimilation. Oh, that's kowtowing to white supremacy and flying under the radar. Yeah, and you it's know. true that Hanson and her ilk don't actually bring an alternative culture into any kind of realistic <laughs> culture war. I mean, it's <laughs> like, what <laughs> is the war? I mean, we've got the B, but what's the A? I love this idea about the cultureless essence of what we are meant to presume to be the norm of kind of the standard white bread person in Australia. And I agree with you. Well, that's where I think white supremacy becomes so fervent. Because it comes from a blank sort of space? And without religion, without Mm. culture, Mm. then you've got people who are just like, that's the only thing that they can hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. So the confluence of these two plays at this particular moment has been very powerful for me and I think also, of course, for everyone involved. But the absolute absurdity of this whole thing is is that currently in Australia, 50% of people were either not born here or their parents weren't born here. We're not talking about like the people in David's play, like his Lebanese grandfather who came here in the late 1800s. We're talking about first-generation migrants, second-generation migrants making up half of the population. Correct. So that is something to threaten someone like Pauline Hanson. Totally. You know. Rightly so. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief. (laughs) Organize. Yeah, well. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So this was a beautiful lyrical piece about David Joseph's history. He also had his white grandfather who was a, was he? He was a cop. And then he became a Tivoli singer. Ooh. And then, you know, in a, like a Hollywood twist, ASIO <laughs> picked him up and said, you'd be right to... And, I, and I, loved, I loved the little detail. Having worked at the Immigration Museum, I liked the detail of the interaction between the performer and the National Archives of Australia being incorporated into the show. So some of the stuff yes. that he was projecting was that documentary evidence, or in this case, the rejection of his rights to see the documentary evidence about his own grandfather. I found that familiar, but also really worth telling that when it comes to family history in Australia, it's a legal terrain that's problematic, that you can't automatically learn everything that the nation knows through its documentation, even about people who have been dead for a long time Mm. and whose story would mean so much to you if you knew more about it. 
And also, like, ironically or symbiotically, I know obviously a lot of wogs in the community and basically ASIO would track any wog that was successful. So if they had, you know, a lot of money, they had a successful business or they were politically active, there are hundreds of thousands of files. Like they would tr- – so a lot of my friends have actually applied to the archives mm. to have the files mm. of their grandparents. Yeah, right. If somebody was watching, then why not? Yeah, seriously. Mm. And especially a friend of mine whose dad was in the Marxist party had years of surveillance, like phone records, everything. So he was actually able to get them because his dad never did anything wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like the Governments. irony of it all. I mean, that's a lot of a mismatch of ideas and this like xenophobia Incredible. and yeah. So the, the two of them combined has been very powerful and I'm very humbled and thankful that we were able to see these shows and especially in the light of, you know, no arts funding that it's even more important that these performances continue. Okay, coming soon. Coming soon. What have you got on, More things Darlingska? to do. Well, maybe summer is starting. It's possible. Huh? It's you can't possible. guarantee hot weather till January. It's possible. <laughs> I was so interested that you said about white people that they are without religion and without culture. I just quickly jotted that down as a segue, which I'm now labouring, uh, because I am going to resist current cultural and political trends by seeing Messiah by Handel. Oh. Uh, the, the 18th century masterpiece first performed for charitable reasons, right? First performed as an act of solidarity with poor orphans by the master, the master George Friedrich Handel in London. Anyway, what happens every December is that dorky choristers and instrumentalists sing this magical, mysterious piece, which is for all of us. I mean, it is for those without religion. It is for those without culture. This guy is the person that I think some of us need right now. Wow. This is not, it's not a story of the life of Jesus. It is a series of mysterious utterances from the sacred texts of the Old and New Testaments, barely coherently connected, but the overwhelming effect of listening to this material is so meditative. It's about suffering, it's about redemption, and it's it's magical. Anyway, something that just sort of bubbles away in the background in our city is that the Melbourne Philharmonic Choir and Orchestra will actually perform Messiah for a world record 237th time. Wow. Like, so they've been going at it since 1853. That's this beautiful. Is, this is an authentic Melbourne tradition. Like, this predates Federation by, by 47 years. That's absolutely beautiful. So why not consider getting to the Melbourne Town Hall for that version in mid-December, or the MSO's doing it, or there's a performance at St Peter's Anglican. It's all over the place. Just hear it and um, cry. Wow. Yeah, that's my tip. That's gorgeous. Mm. Well, I finally crawled out of my... Shell. Welcome to the light. (laughs) I'm out and about. So I've got a lot of things planned. My friend Ben McKenzie, shout out Ben McKenzie, our friend of the podcast, really. Everyone in the room. He has a immersive bank robbery game. Yes. In an old bank in Preston. Yes. So you go there and there's an actor, Ben's one of them. There's quite a few, they do different shifts. And uh you hold up the bank with your friends ooh, ooh. and then to get all of the jewels, you've got to solve lots of different puzzles. Let's play this. So I'm going with a whole bunch of people. Right. Soon. 
that's one of the things that I'm doing. We're going to go and see the new Nicola Gunn piece, which mm. looks exciting. At the Alliance Francaise, yes, about language. That does look good. And what else? Oh, Betty Grumble and Agent Cleave. So Agent Cleave is Melbourneian man about town, mm. really. He does everything. Long time queer performer. He's a dancer with peaches, but while he's in town, he's going to do a little set with uh, He Cries Diamonds, which is wow. his musical activity. I thought nothing happened in December, but all these things are happening. And Betty Grumble's going to join him on stage that night. And she is a quote unquote sex clown hmm. who does a play about the world dying. I think that's what it is. So it's called Betty Grumble Saves the World. These so are great go tips. See that. Yes. Yeah. And I think that might be it up until Christmas break, but maybe we'll try and squeeze something else in. But yeah. I'm energised. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everyone. This has been lovely. So that is that for this month. Thanks for listening. You can contact Philip and I at us at acrossisle.com or on our Facebook page, Across Isle, or via our Twitter account at Across Isle. Shaq West and Mark Barrage are responsible for our unique and delicious sound. Look them up for sound production, soundtrack scoring, and many other professional services. Thank you to all the artists who put on the shows we've seen this month. Without you, we would have been forced to hear more about Donald Trump. And finally, if you've been energised or upset by recent events or feel passionately about the topics we have discussed today, please consider giving to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. That's my primary not-for-profit that I donate to, but you could also look at things like the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or I'm sure that there's something in that space where you live as well. Thanks again and see you in a month.